you're not very good at this. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh. Welcome back to Royals Weekly. I'm your host, Marcus Mead, and with me, as always, is a man who has more than one cardboard sword he uses to live action role play in the park. My brother, Mike. Hey, LARP it up, people. LARP is for the people. It is. You know what I've always said? It, you know those guys wearing like uh, shoulder pads with spikes on them at Raiders at Raiders games and stuff like that? Basically there is the no difference thing. between them and the people playing Lord of the Rings in the park. It's all just fantasy, people. Dive <laughs> in. Soak it all in. So if you want more than one cardboard sword that you've named like Mike has, then you go ahead and make yourself one. Before we get into the baseball this week, we wanted to thank some of you who have subscribed, rated, and reviewed the show so far. If you haven't, just do it right now. Just right now. Go do it. Pause the episode. Go into the podcast app you use. Click the subscribe button. Give us the five-star rating and review. Why do we deserve five stars? Because there's no way to give us six. I've looked into it. So do that right now and then come back and listen to the rest of this because what we got moving forward is pretty brilliant if I do say so myself. And so... You're going to want to hear the rest of it, but there are two new wonderful people who've already done this, who've subscribed, rated, and reviewed, and we want to give them a shout out as we do every week. There are two new wonderful people who have already subscribed, rated, and reviewed, who gave us five-star ratings. Uh, Mike, I think I've been thinking about this. I think we need to come up with a name for our listener bases. You know, like, you know how some celebrities have fan bases with listener, yeah. like with mm-hmm. names? Yeah. Any ice, clever ideas for names for this? I, I don't have a specific one, but... So like you know how Long Beach has like their players they call themselves the dirt bags. Yeah, love I it. feel like our listeners need something like the dirt bags. Not I don't want to rip that off, but if we can come up with something that's like gritty like that, you know, something you might hear on the wire or oh, yeah. you know, something like, you know, the Royals Weekly punk whatever, you know. Oh yeah. Uh, the Royals Weekly garbage man, you know, like the the <laughs> Royals Weekly you know face punchers you know yeah, something like that face punchers that's there we good. go obviously clearly we're not like at a, or not employed by an ad agency or anything where you're supposed to come <laughs> up with ideas but you know if you have them send them to us because i was thinking royalties but that just seems that's terrible ridiculous i don't know nobody pays uh, me for these things um so I like yeah. when you can run the word right into another word are you thinking of the cumber bitches because yeah or something like that's that. a like great the, one the yeah. something that rhymes like idiots at the end you know like <laughs> re idiots. <laughs> yeah. uh, we'll come up with great. something. We'll come up with something at some point. We'll have a pitch meeting. Like like Beyonce us, has the beehive or you know, oh yeah, called the bee beehive. I don't even know how you pronounce it, but I don't know. We need something like that. Yeah. We'll get uh, there. We'll get something like that going. Um, but our listeners, TBD to be named, you know, um, <laughs> they came up with a couple of great reviews from this week. Uh, one reviewer named CJC757. I loved this review. I love because it made a, some references from my childhood yeah. that I just love going back to. This review said the 80s had Bob and Doug McKenzie, the 90s had Wayne and Garth, the 2020s have the Mead brothers. <laughs> You'll always have us 2020s. That's our, uh, I, my, our good friend, John. John oh, Corey. okay, good. Because so, yeah. I'm choosing to read that as a compliment, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Right. Because none of those people listed there are like way up on the intelligence scale. It's like, you know, yeah, they're beloved characters in some way, but do you want to be Bob or Doug McKenzie? Not really. I would want to be Garth. 
Really? I, I don't want to be Wayne necessarily, but I wouldn't mind being Garth. He seemed like a smart with it kind of cat. Maybe of like a four little bit of a, yeah. maybe a little bit of a shut in type, but uh, he, he, and, and Dana Carvey can actually play the drums. So like he's, he's a real deal there. So I guess of those four, I would rather be Garth than all of them, but really I would rather be somebody entirely different. But anyway, I choose <laughs> to see that as a compliment. Thank you very much. Uh, CJC757 said that uh, they like the way we dig into the intricacies of the game, which is really difficult to do in audio in some ways. Like I could very easily point to things in a swing and talk about that. But when you can't see what I'm talking about, that makes it tougher. So hopefully it's coming through that we're digging into some of the details of the games and, and the way the team operates in his run. Um, a second review from somebody named Coach Hill 1491. So apparently he's been coaching for a really long time. Gosh, this guy's been uh, around. 1491? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, how'd they play football back then? I don't know. I don't even know. Uh, it wasn't even football. It was just it was just ball back then. It was just d- dudes wearing dresses and pointy shoes, you know, calling each other weirdo names. Shakespeare like, was calling the game. That's right. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, when, it, when I saw Coach Hill, I'm like, oh, Mike's best friend, Tyreek Hill, is, uh, is chiming in here. Um, <laughs> I actually do think I know this guy. I think it is uh, Coach Hill, a guy that I work with, but uh, and also went to college with us, oddly enough. Um, but uh, no, it, I doubt it's Tyreek. Uh, he's busy, you know. I don't think yeah. I know he listens. Obviously, he listens. That's, he obviously that's, listens. that's a certainty. It's the off season, though. So maybe it is. He's got yeah. time. Um, I watched a highlight where he jumped over a small child the other day. So uh, in between doing those two things or in between doing that and something else, he wrote this review. Yeah. Uh, it said a uh, great, great review here from Coach Hill 1491. It said this pod contains some of my favorite things, educators, twin brothers, which I am as well. And one of the best franchises to root for. The title of his review was an interesting, it was called Best Kept Secret, but we don't want this to be a secret, people. Like, <laughs> we don't want it to be the best or worst kept secret. We just want it to be out there. Tell everybody you know, right? Like, uh, don't keep the secret. Secrets poison your soul. So That's just right. tell everyone you know about Royals Weekly, and we won't be a secret anymore. We'll be uh, we'll be out there like the Beehive or the Bayhive, just right. uh, going nuts. That's uh, right. Uh, I wish I had another good one besides the Beehive or whatever. We'll come Uh, up with one. Give us some time. (laughs) We get there in the end. Anyway, let's get into baseball. We'll start off with roster news from last week. The Royals officially brought up Jackson Kowar on Monday this of last week. Uh, They DFA'd that's designated for assignment Jake Newberry to make room for Jackson Kowar on the forty man roster. If you don't know how this works. But think of Major League Baseball teams as having two rosters. One is the 40-man roster, and one is now the 26-man roster. The 40-man roster is like all players who are eligible to be brought up to the 26-man roster. And the 26-man roster are the guys who sit in the dugout and play in the game. But in order to get on the 26-man roster, you have to be on the 40-man roster. The 40-man roster, Jackson Kowar wasn't on it. He needed to be put on it before he could come up to the 26-man roster and play in a game and pitch. They decided to make Jake Newberry the casualty, the guy who would be cut from the 40-man roster, designated for assignment. And when you're designated for assignment, you're made available to all other teams. They can claim you on waivers. Nobody claimed Jake Newberry, and so he went back to uh, AAA, to Omaha. And so that's where he uh, has been uh, for the last few days. But Kowar, he made his debut, struggled in it, pitched again yesterday, struggled again. So this week, he totaled two starts, only two innings in those two starts, Eight hits, eight earned runs, five walks, and only one strikeout. Uh, 
I see a lot of people panicking online. I see a lot of people freaking out on Twitter, like, oh my God, he's not going to be anything. He's a bum. Send him back. This is so angry. I'm so angry. Blah, 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 blah. Calm down, people. Calm down. This is two starts in a man's career who's going to make hundreds of starts. So just relax and let me reassure you, this is not the Jackson Coar that we saw at AAA. And that should actually be an encouraging sign. That should be a good sign. If Jackson Coar had come out in his first two starts and pitched the same way that he did in AAA, where he was commanding the ball, where his stuff was working, where he was commanding all three pitches, having a good pitch mix, all these sorts of things. If he was doing that and getting hit and giving up runs, then you should panic. You should panic when he ha- doesn't have his A or when he has his A game and he's getting rocked. That's when you should really be worried. You should actually be encouraged by the fact that these first two starts were not him. If he had looked this bad at AAA, he would have gotten hit there too, and he wouldn't be here right now. But what it is, is the guy's still nervous. The guy, So you go out for your first start. Just imagine you go out for your first start. It goes about as bad as a first start can, and you are devastated. Now you go out for your second start. What's the only thing you're thinking about? I hope this isn't as bad as my first one. Don't let so that happen again. Is. Yeah. Of course it is, right? Like these are human beings we're talking about here. And if you ever listen to an interview with Jackson Kowar, he's not like your hyper confident, uber, you know, charismatic. I mean, he's, he's articulate, but he's not like that guy who you're like, oh man, that dude could run for president. Like he is so confident. No, he's more cerebral, introspective, the type of guy who might actually get really nervy a few times, who might overthink himself, all that sort of stuff. That define he, he's very much like that. And so it doesn't surprise me that he struggled out of the gate. Honestly, he struggled out of the gate at every stop he's made a little bit, but that is in some ways an encouraging sign because the fact that you're not seeing command from him tells you that if he gets that, you'll see the real coar and we'll get a chance to see what he might actually be at the major league level. Yeah, and and the encouraging thing here is if he does look extremely nervous in these starts, most of the time in guys' careers, they get over that. Once major league beca- the major leagues becomes normal to you and you've become comfortable there, those things sort of go away. Now, that's not everybody. There have been times when guys just literally cannot get over that, Rick Ankeel, but it, that's the rarity. That's really the exception. Usually guys settle down at some point. His stuff is good enough. And what what's the alternative? You send him back down to a place that he he's getting no value. I mean, he's not getting anything from being in AAA anymore right now. It's just not the case. He has to be up here learning in the major at the major league level because he got everything he could out of Omaha. There wasn't going to be more there. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point because I hear people like, send him back down. Guys, this is why the Royals have this season. This season is not made to compete. This season is made to get guys like Jackson Kowar and Daniel Lynch and Brady Singer and Chris Bubich and Edward Olivares and a few others ready to start competing next year. Right. So they're going to, they need the time to work things out. They need the time to struggle. The only time you even think about sending him back down is if his confidence is so crushed, he's not even competing out there anymore. He looks completely morose. You have to give him his chance to go out there, learn from those outings and get comfortable competing at the major league level, knowing that he can throw against these hitters and just relaxing up there on the mound. Because that's ultimately going to get him to where he's doing his best and we get to actually see what Jackson Coar could be at the major league level. The Royals also optioned Edward Olivares again 
this week. So he's kind of been up and down and up, and he's like a yo-yo at this point for the team, up and down to AAA all the time. He only stayed in the majors for like one game. Well, he was here for a couple of games. He only started one game uh, for the Royals this this time around. I don't love them doing this to Olivares. I don't love them, you know, sending him down, bringing him back up, and all that sort of thing. To me, you give a guy regular at bats. You treat him like he like, especially a guy like Olivares who crushed at AAA. Treat him like he's a prospect. Give him the time if he deserves it, or leave him in AAA if he doesn't. Yeah, just like the point you were making. That's what this year is for. Bring him up, give him the at bats to see if he's a piece that we can use moving forward, or if he's just going to be a kind of a four A guy or a guy that's a fourth outfielder moving forward. You won't know if you keep bringing him down and sending him up. That's not gonna. That's not how you gain information on a, on a player. Right. And it's not like he hasn't played well at, at the major league level. He just hasn't played very much. Yeah. Right. He's had hits here or there, but when you're not getting bad bats every day and when you're sort of always the looming threat that you're going to get sent back down to AAA, you know, it's a little tough to get comfortable and start hitting. But he has hit a little bit. So we should be pretty happy with what he's done so far. The thing is, Jorge Soler is still a thing, is still a player they need to play. And as long as he's a player they need to play, Olivares just isn't going to have the playing time. I think they're waiting until he's off the books. And then all of us will get his everyday stretch later in the season. I, I almost guarantee that. Other than that, roster news-wise, it's just been the regular old sending bullpen guys up and down as they need more arms because their starters aren't going very long. They sent Jacob Junis down to make room for Coar on the 26-man roster. Uh, they brought uh, Carlos Hernandez up again so he could throw some innings for uh, the Royals. So it's really just finding innings where they can get them. This week, the Royals had a rough, rough week, which is one of the reasons they needed more bullpen guys up and down. They went one and six this week, which brings their overall record to 30 and 34. Uh, they took a road trip out west and they died of dysentery, sadly. <laughs> Oregon, Boom, Oregon Trail. Oregon Trail reference. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, was, I, I never died from dysentery because I never got that far. I was too cheap to pay for the expensive thing to get over the rivers. So I always died at the rivers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's like a metaphor for your life. I was too cheap. I, and so I was I too cheap, dying. but I was like 10 when we were playing that yeah. game. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, this road trip out West was a, was a nightmare, especially that first three games against the angels where you go in against the angels and you're like, well, this is a team that we can beat. We can maybe grab minimum. You should grab one win in that series at best. A couple wins would seem reasonable. And they go in and they get swept by an Angels team that didn't have Mike Trout. That starting rotation has not been very good, and they just just got rocked. I don't. I don't they didn't look super competitive in that series to me, which was sad. Shohei Otani hit a, a ball. I don't know. He had every feet. ball. He had every ball, but every he hit one ball. of them eight hundred feet. Yeah, uh, Four, and so seventy some feet. And and oh. I mean, we could not get that guy out. If he wasn't hitting bombs, he was only hitting doubles. Like just put him on base and get it over with. There were t- there was ah. one about I, I distinctly remember they didn't walk him intentionally. I don't think, but they basically did. They finally they, they figured it out. Is what they did all the way around him, man. Um, and so, yeah, it was a rough series in in Los Angeles. And then they go to Oakland. They grab a win in the first game, and I'm thinking, hey, maybe they'll do that Royals thing where they play really bad against the bad teams, but really good against the good ones. But no, they just went ahead and lost the next three to Oakland too. Um, And so, yeah, it was a rough, rough week. Uh, Yeah, that's why I put not, you remember the the mamas and the papas hits, California dreaming? Oh yeah. California dreaming. California dreaming. On such a winter's day. Stopped it to a church. Great song, okay? Great song. That was California nightmare. Yeah, (laughs) that was tragic story. California nightmare is how I'm including that. Like 
is this our first trip out to the West Coast this year? Or did we have one earlier? I, I, th- I thought it was I think it first. was. I think it and was. Man. And we even talked last week. We said the Royals are going to have to take their bats out to the West Coast, especially against that Angels team, because even though because their their chance to win against the Angels was to score runs because mm-hmm. the Angels offense, even without Mike Trout, is still pretty good, especially at the top of the, the first the top half of their lineup. And we just didn't do it. We did not capitalize on really three average to bad pitchers that they put out there. And we uh, didn't face Otani. Yeah. Like he's their best starter right now. We didn't face him. We faced their guys rolling out. Every every pitcher we faced had a 4.5 ERA or higher. Yeah. And two of them had over five. And so we made, we made Dylan Bundy look like the Dylan Bundy that was like the first year in Baltimore, the Dylan Bundy. They thought he was going to (laughs) be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We made Dylan Bundy look like the Dylan Bundy. Everybody thought he would be, which is the saddest statement of that series. Yeah. Um, And so, yeah, it was, it was rough. It was a California nightmare for us. I'm glad we're coming home because I don't know what it is about out West. It it crushed us. There were some strong performances from this week had to go uh, a little hunting and pecking for them because uh, there weren't a ton, but I I wanted to talk a, a little bit about Mike Miner because he did have a really good outing and, and, he got us the lone win from this week. He went seven innings, gave up one earned, only had three hits, one walk, and eight strikeouts, which which was amazing, because he's he's it was a performance where you could see what, the importance of command in beating major league hitters. So Mike Miner throws maybe ninety one to ninety three most of the time, but he's just spotting that fastball and using it really as a weapon, up and in and out and up, and it was just it was all over the place for him. And then fading a beautiful changeup away from these Oakland right-handers, and it was kept keeping him off balance with with pitch selection that was outside the box. So it wasn't always like fastball up and in and then changeup away. The thing about Miner is because he has multiple secondary pitches, unlike a guy like Bubich, who, yes, he has the curveball and the change, but to right-handers, he's always going to the change. And so it feels like they, they're they looking for it on every two-strike count. You can't look for a particular pitch against Mike Miner in a two-strike count. And as a result, it's easier for him to put guys away. Sorry, I like the knuckle curve maybe be- better than the change for Miner even. Um, he's got a knuckle curveball that, that plays really, really well, especially to right-handed hitters kind of back foot. Um, with that, cause it is a little more slurvy. It doesn't go just straight up and down. Um, but yeah, the, the fastball up and into right handers, you and I noted this during the game was exceptional and you get, I think he got 11 swings and misses for a guy who does not have overpowering stuff. Um, but has the pitch ability to keep guys guessing. And that's what some of our younger starters don't have at all, whether it's singer or Bubich. There's, you know, in certain counts and certain spots of the game, you know what they are going to throw every single time. And part of that might be the calling of the games, but part of that is also the fact that they don't have something else to go to. Uh, I think it's both of those. I, I yeah. think you're right. That's a, that's, a, that's a really good insight because I was critical of Salvador Perez in one of the starts this week. I want to say it was singers, but I could be wrong. Uh, I was critical of him because of the game that was being called every two. It was no, it was Bubich's first start this week. Mm-hmm. Every two strike count. It was very clear that hitters were prepared to just fight off change ups from him. 
right? And I'm asking, like I'm screaming at the TV, you know, throw something different, throw a high fastball, throw a fastball on the outside corner. They're never going to see that coming, like because they're they're expecting those early encounters, not when they're way behind. And so I feel like it's getting a little predictable in the pitch selection. Now, Miner's the type of pitcher who will just shake him off. Like he's yeah. a veteran. He's done this a bunch. He, he, sh- he shook Salvi a ton of times in that start he had this week and got to pitches that he wanted to throw. And I feel like that was beneficial for the, for the outing as a whole. Yeah. They even made a comment on the broadcast about that because there was a point when he's going through signs, Miner's shaking him off multiple times. Uh, and then he has to, so he had to step off the mound for a second to regroup and then get, or step off the rubber for a second, regroup, and get back in there because Miner was like, nope, I'm not throwing that. Nope, I'm not throwing that. Um, so you do have to question a little bit how well are these games being called. But for those young guys, they have to have reliable secondary pitches that they feel comfortable going to and that the catcher feels comfortable calling for them. Yeah, that's true. And that's actually why I have a bunch of hope for Jackson Kowar because more than any of the other young pitchers that they have, he has three legitimate pitches. Right. You could say Singer doesn't. Singer's got two and his changeup is still really fringy um, and he doesn't feel confident throwing it. Bubich, he's got three, but his curveball is not nearly the pitch that, say, uh, Koar's curveball is. Koar has that well, fastball changeup curve. And I think that all of them are at least, I think the curveball, which is the weakest of the three, are major league. Well, no, actually, the fastball may be the weakest of the three, but he can throw any of them in any count for the most part when he's when he's on. And you might say for Bubich, he needs those secondary pitches even to be a little bit higher because his fastball is not going to be what yeah. you can get out of stuff with. You know, even when he's commanding it, it's still 92, 93 mile per hour fastball that isn't going to blow it by anybody, you know. So he may need a, a the changeup and the curveball to play even a step higher than a singer and a Kowar need to who can throw a little bit harder or get a little bit more movement with their fastball. So tell those guys to sit down next to Mike Miner and let them learn him up a little bit because yeah. they could. I feel like they could gain a lot from his approach to pitching. Uh, Mike, I know you wanted to talk about another guy who, another pitcher who really sort of broke out this week a little bit. Uh, yeah, Chris Bubich, or no, sorry, Ronald Bolaños. We've been talking about Bubich so much. Ronald Bolaños uh, was a just a really pleasant surprise uh, in relief uh, this week. He went five and two third innings. Uh, only gave up one earned run, only two hits, two walks, and nine strikeouts. He's been really big in some situations where we didn't get very many innings out of our starter. And Bolaños is a guy who started in the minors, and there's been some concern about his control, but when he's come in this week, his ability to throw in the zone and get a lot of movement and still stay in the strike zone has been great. He's got good stuff, and he's been able to locate it this week within the zone, still getting a lot of movement. So uh, really exciting to see him moving forward. And I hope they continue to go to him in a bullpen role and ding, 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 look out. You may see him start a game or two for the Royals in the next month or so. I think it's in the next couple of months, I think it's very likely that he does, if nothing else, just because stuff happens and it's just starting pitchers. And so, you know, Bolaños is probably going to definitely going to make a start by the end of the year, I would imagine. So I, I'm just interested to see what that looks like. There are people who are like, Send Coar down and have Bolaño start in his spot. I don't know that I'm on that on that train, but at some point Bolaños is going to make some starts. That sinker of his looked that first outing of his this week. That sinker looked insane. Yeah, just insane. It was dropping feet, not inches. It was a bunch. And so, yeah, I was very happy to see that that from him, and very happy to see that the command 
looks a lot better than it has like last year than it did last year or in the past. He really sort of seemed much more consistent as a pitcher than he has previously. Now that can go away at any time. Inconsistency is a funny thing. It pops up at the most random times. Um, and so, yeah, we'll see if he continues to get that going because it's some really valuable innings out of the bullpen for him. You mentioned Chris Bubich already because he has been struggling this week. Let's dig into some guys who have not been fantastic. Uh, I wouldn't have talked about Whit Merrifield, but if you want to go ahead and talk about Chris Bubich first. Uh, well, Bubich, you know, is a guy that I like a lot. I think he provides value to a starting rotation if he's the best version of himself. Eight and two-thirds inning this week, 11 earned runs, and that's a lot of based on he's given up seven home runs in eight and two-thirds innings. Uh, five walks and nine strikeouts, that's bad too. If you're going to be a Chris Bubich, you cannot walk that many guys. He was giving up. It was a launching pad in these two starts. They did a uh, super cut of all the home runs he gave up today. Yeah. And it was like middle, middle, ni- 90 mile an hour fastball middle, middle. right down Broadway, 95 middle, middle fastball, Broadway, 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 gone, 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 <laughs> you know, like, whoa. <laughs> um, yes. So the thing that we've actually liked about him this year is that it seems like his command has gotten better. The problem is you can't throw it down the middle to major league pitchers. So that was pretty bad command today. Uh, it wasn't great earlier this week either. Uh, he's just he, he doesn't have the kind of stuff, you know. Sometimes you'll see a a uh, singer throw that two seamer and it ends right middle middle, right? But it started inside, so sometimes he can get away with that. Sometimes you'll see a guy like a uh, uh, Carlos Hernandez Stalmont. or Stalmont. They'll throw one right down the pipe, but you're throwing a hundred, so you got a better chance of not giving up that. You throw ninety one down the middle to a major league hitter. It's going to leave the yard or he'll throw his change up and it'll stick in the middle and it'll be 83. That's even worse because <laughs> that's like, Oh, that's a guaranteed home run. Almost. And there are baseball. some junior college hitters putting that out of the yard. Exactly. So, uh, Bubich has got to continue to work on the command. Like we said earlier, his pitch mix probably has to get better for him to be the Chris Bubich who can be an effective four or five starter in a Royals rotation moving forward. Because he's not a relief guy. You can't just say, hey, well, we'll just put him in the bullpen if he doesn't work out. He's probably not a bullpen arm either. So he's got to be a good starter. He's got to get the command that he needs. Yeah, I chose Whit Merrifield as having a uh, struggling week, which is too bad because last week he's been on a little roller coaster for us here at Royals Weekly. Like We mentioned him as struggling two weeks ago. Then he had a really good week last week. We mentioned him as having a hot week and how he picked it up, and we were really happy about that. And now he's back down again. And so his batting average went from like 250 to 265. And now he's back down to 255. And so he's a real roller coaster uh, time for Whit Merrifield. He was five for 31 this week, but, and that's not good for him. That's not a great week. But the thing that stuck out to me, he, he had 10 strikeouts this week. That's very un Merrifield like. Merrifield, for all, for all the, as much as he swings, and he does swing a lot. He, he's a contact maker. He does not swing and miss a lot. And so 10 strikeouts in a week is not great for him. I, I hope he gets back to this approach where he is like really using contact to get on base because that's what he has to do because he doesn't walk very much. And so, yeah, Merrifield, you're not going to hit the ball 105 miles an hour like Salvador Perez, but just slap yourself a line drive to right field. When they shift, you slap a ground ball through the right side. 
Stop trying to pull the ball. Stop trying to be a guy who's hitting it with a ton of exit velocity, because even if you hit your max exit velocity, it's not going to be tremendous. So just go ahead and play the sort of soft line drive game that you play. And then when they throw you a cookie, when you're, when you're sort of in the right kind of situation, look to tee off on one. But right now, it just needs to be that contact-oriented approach. And I know he's probably trying to do that, and it's just not working for him. But it was another sort of down week for Merrifield this week. But really, it was a down week for everyone. Mike, what did you take away as your theme of the week for this week? Um, my theme of the week is there are going to be times when the Royals, there are going to be teams that they play, I should say, that they have to hit with. And that has been a real struggle for the Royals. We saw it early in this week, and really, we saw it all week because the A's have a really good offense, too, or at least... They played really well offensively in this series. We have got to be able to hit with a team like the Angels when they're putting out bad starting pitching. There's going to be times we're going to have to hit with the White Sox if we want to win those games. There's going to be times you have to hit with teams. And right now, if we don't get excellent starting pitching, a lot of times, and really excellent pitching overall, a lot of times we don't even have a chance to participate in that game. You know, we, we are out of it immediately because we're not going to score six or eight runs probably. Um, and so we really have to be able at times to say, hey, we're going to win a game seven to six. We're going to win it against a team that can really hit uh, because they're rolling out bad pitchers and we're not hitting them. You have to hit the bad pitchers. We're not doing it. Yeah, I think that dovetails really nicely with my theme of the week, which is that the Royals are thin and they look thin right now, right? Like they look like a thin team roster wise. So Adalberto Mondesi's out and has been out for a week or two and losing him has shown our okay. offense to yeah. be lacking in talent. Right. And then you sort of, you see these huge slumps, prolonged slump from Solaire and Dozier, and we have no one really to put in their place and say, okay, this guy's going to give you good at bats and fill in. So they're just thin roster wise. Sorry, what you end up with then is three guys trying to carry your offense. Santana, Benintendi, and Sal. Three guys aren't going to carry an offense every night. It, it yeah, can't not, not all the time. When they're all on, yeah, the Royals can score eight or nine runs. When none of them are on, the Royals can't score any. I mean, if you think about like what is what does five through nine look for like for them? It's Solaire, Dozier, Michael A. Taylor, Nicky Lopez, and Kelvin Gutierrez most nights, right? And so that's not what you want the bottom of half of your lineup to look like, you know, and they're just showing that this team is actually really thin. And early on in the year, when got certain guys were hot and certain things were going their way, it kind of covered up some of that thinness, but the thinness is showing right now. I mean, yeah. the thinness is very obvious when, you know, they can't get runners across when, you know, they're not taking advantage of opportunities and things like that. The Royals just look pretty thin. If you like what you're hearing, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on whatever platform you use. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing helps people find the show and helps us build a larger community. If you leave us a five-star rating and good review, we'll make sure to give you a shout-out and read a snippet of your review on the next show. Also, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, at Royals Weekly. We tweet during most games, so you can get all this fresh insight for free by simply following us. When times are tough for the major league team, I often find solace by looking to the future, a time that represents more hope and less soul-crushing darkness. With that in mind, we're going to look toward a more hopeful future by focusing this week's spotlight segment on the upcoming MLB draft. Other outlets are also focusing on the draft, including our friends at Foy Royals Farm Report. 
So go ahead and give your eyes and ears to them as well. If you'd like to learn more about the different players available and what you think the Royals should do or what they think the Royals should do this year in the draft. A lot of great insight coming over the next month from various outlets. The Royals will pick seventh and 43rd overall for their first two picks in this draft. And Mike, I wanted to start this conversation with a broad question to you. And that is, what do you think the Royals should be focused on heading into this draft? Where do you think their minds should be? Well, when you look at a a Major League Baseball draft, they're very different than an NFL draft because these guys aren't going to come in and play right away. There are many, many rounds, and a lot of it is the the key components of it really depend on your system's developmental ability at that point and what kind of players you like to draft. Now, there's a huge debate, and you're going to get maybe a little bit more into this on do you take the best player available or do you take something else? maybe a, something of need. And I know you're going to talk about that, but I want to talk fo- focus kind of on best player available. An organization has to ask themselves, do they want the best player available or do they want their best prospect available? Those are different things because a person who performs well at the collegiate level, or maybe even as a high school player has to have more skills that can be developed. They have to have more development in them rather than just saying, I'm going to take, because you cannot take any player from college baseball and just go, okay, you're a major leaguer now and expect them to do well. Um, They're very, very, I think, what what was his name? Bob Feller, I think, came up directly from high school as a 19-year-old and was great. He's the exception to that rule. That's it. Um, Of course, that was back before television was invented. Before World War II, because then he went and fought in World War II. So, Um, you know. So what I'm kind of saying here is, when the, the Royals' philosophy here should be, What guys can we look at? What is the best prospect available? Can they come into our system and we can develop them? And I wanted to give you some examples here. Uh, Gosh, I should have looked it up, but years ago in the mid 2000s, I believe late the 2000 teens, the Royals take Christian Cologne, number four overall. Okay. Christian Cologne was like a golden spikes uh, candidate. He was a great, great, great player out collegiate player out of um, Cal State Fullerton, I believe, and they take him. He has no development left in him. He is the best player he was ever going to be at Cal State Fullerton. He comes in, and he really is only, I mean, he scored a couple big runs in Royals history, but he's really only a utility player ever, and you took him four overall. Let's juxtapose that with a guy named Lorenzo Cain. Now, the Royals did not draft Lorenzo Cain. The Brewers did, but they got him in the 17th round. He played at Tallahassee Community College. He had never played, he hadn't played baseball until he was a sophomore in high school. He had a ton of development left in him. So when the Brewers got him, they brought him into his system. He went through every single level of the minors, including rookie, rookie ball, and then got to the majors probably a little later than most people do. But then when he did, he had developed tremendously as a player. So I say, as they're going into this draft, you need to be looking at what guys still have a lot of development left to do, even if there's somebody, and that can be somebody who has been a good college player, um, but you need to be able to see that they still have development left in them. Yeah. And that's sort of a personal philosophy thing, depending on what clubs really are interested in. It's almost some, in some ways, the difference between what they call a high floor guy and a high ceiling guy. There are some organizations, and I think the Royals have sometimes been knocked for this, who are interested in taking high floor guys, meaning this prospect may not have as much potential as some others, but he's going to be probably going to be at least uh, capable of getting to the major league level at some point. 
Who um, who would you say that is in Royals history? Give an example. Well, an example would like Alex be Alex Gordon. No, he had a high, a lot of people saw him as high ceiling when he came out. Um, they took a guy recently named Nick Lofton, who okay. is probably this guy, uh, a guy who a lot of tools or broad tools, but not like any one which uh, scouts call carrying tool, right? And no one tool that's like, wow, that's a, that's a sixty grade major league tool, you know, or multiple sixty grade major league tools. So this guy is going to have a chance to really develop. More like, okay, we think in a couple of years, at the very least, he could be a utility infielder. Like a Whit um, Merrifield, maybe? Would he be a guy who's a high a high floor guy? He would probably have been drafted as a high floor guy, yes. Yeah. Though he actually ended up developing such a good hit tool that he ended up making it as, a, as an everyday major league player and being a very successful one. But a lot of times, those types of guys get taken a little bit later by some teams. Uh, the Royals have been criticized for drafting those guys too high for putting too much stock into a guy who it's perceived as having more certainty in terms of their ability to reach the major leagues, but may not be able to become a four five, six wins above replacement player at the major league level. Um, other teams are more into drafting high ceiling guys. They want guys who have the potential to become very good major league players. And then they trust their development system to turn them into those major league players. I think part of the reason the Royals, I, I think they trust every team of us trusts their own development system, but maybe some teams shouldn't. Um, but uh, I think that they, for some reason, tend to value those high floor guys more than some teams do. It is what it is on that on that front. So, for um, an example of a high ceiling guy, you might think of a Bubba Starling in that in that case, right? Yeah, Bubba Starling. He, he was, was a high ceiling high guy, ceiling but guy. maybe a really low floor guy. You just didn't know yeah. what you were going to get there. Exactly. Now, when he was drafted, some people tried to turn it and sort of say like, well, at worst, he could be a fourth outfielder. And that's true. But actually, he wouldn't even be a great fourth outfielder at this point. And so like, there's always sort of spin and things like that after the draft actually happens. But he was definitely seen as a high ceiling guy going into it because he had all these tools across the board because he could run because he had power. People thought the hit tool would develop, you know, all that sort of thing. But yeah, he's definitely one one of those high ceiling type prospects. But so is a guy like Nick uh, Nick, uh, Nick Prado, not Nick Prado, Bobby Wood Jr. Bobby Wood Jr. is a high ceiling guy, right? Uh, but they've taken guys, they've signed guys too that are often high ceiling guys. Jordano Ventura was a great example of a high ceiling guy, a guy who, if you look at him, there's a really good chance he never makes it to the major leagues because he's a smaller guy, young guy. Any pitcher is low, high variance, low probability, but the fastball was off the charts, really loose arm, and eventually he makes it to the major league level and is productive as a major leaguer. And so a lot of a uh, lot of high ceiling for him, but a lot of variance. There's a really good chance that he never even makes it above double A, you know, but he did. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of an example of those two different things. Um, I think you're making an excellent point there. And I also think that like when people say the term best player available, I think that term has sort of migrated over from the NFL draft discussion uh, where things are much different, right? Where um, teams actually make big boards where they rank players like one, two, three, four, five. And instead of like major league baseball, where players are more grouped into tiers than they are ranked one to whatever. And the, and the distinction is like, there's just way more uncertainty 
drafting a, a baseball player than there is drafting a football player, right? Yes, there's still some uncertainty drafting a football player, but there's way more drafting a baseball player. A lot of the guys in the first round of the Major League Baseball draft will never be any sort of good Major League Baseball player. Most of the guys drafted in the first round of the NFL draft will contribute to an NFL team in some way. Immediately. Uh, immediately, right, right away. Yeah. Um, and so there's a huge difference there. I think the thing a team needs to be thinking about, and I hope the Royals are thinking about going into this draft, are three sort of things. And, and these are all different factors that complicate this notion of just take the best player available. Um, I'm tired of hearing that that slogan. It's a fun slogan, but please stop saying it to me. One, the one thing they need to think of is quality of player, but they do need to think about it not in terms of best player. They need to think about it in terms of tiers of players. Like, wh- What do you think is the difference between this group of guys and this group of guys? Between the Kamar Rocker group, for example, and the Sal Freelich group. Right. What is the difference there? Is it a tangible difference? Is it a difference that isn't that's only slight or is only nominal? Right. If it's if you know these are all questions they need to ask in terms of what tier will we put different players in? Another things all all teams think about is what a thing called signability. Will they be able to sign that player, and how much money will they have to give him in order to get him on the team? Teams like the Royals definitely have to think about it, but all teams do because all teams are only given a certain amount of money to use in the draft. So you're given an amount of money based on where you pick in the draft. So if the Royals pick seventh, they're given the seventh most money in the first round and the seventh most money in the second round and so on and so forth for a total pool of money for the first 10 rounds. Okay. And then they can use that money however they want. So they don't have to give the most to the first round guy or more to the first round guy than they're given to the second round guy in theory. In theory, they could give more to the second round guy that they drafted than the first round guy. Right? And so teams try and sort of play games with this money in order to maybe get better players sometimes. So signability is an issue. And high school guys, they all have a number that they're willing to sign for. And if somebody doesn't offer them that number, they just go to college. And so there's all sort of games around signability that get played. And the third thing teams need to think about when they're drafting players, and I hope the Royals are thinking about it, and that's organizational strengths and weaknesses. You have a farm system with a whole bunch of guys in it. Where are you strong in that farm system and where are you weak? You need to supplement your weaknesses because you need to be able to field an entire team full of prospects, or you need to at least have the the potential to develop prospects all across the diamond. And right now, the thing that concerns me most about the Royals is that they have a ton of prospects at certain positions, pitcher, starting pitching, shortstop, and catcher and very few at other positions, like the outfield. The outfield is very shallow in terms of their organizational strengths. So if I were them, I'd be thinking about that. It'd be in the back of my mind as I was making these decisions. So I'd have them considering questions like, what do we still need to be successful in our next window? And can we get it in this draft? If you can't, you might have to do things like draft a position you're already strong in and try and trade. But If you can find, say, an outfielder, a quality outfielder in this draft, you have to lend weight to the fact that he plays the outfield and you are weak at outfield. With that in mind, Mike and I would like to talk a little bit about prospects we're interested and excited for the Royals to maybe take, or we'd be happy if they took at seven overall. 
Mike, who are three guys that you'd be interested in seeing the Royals take at number seven overall? And give us a little bit about them so that listeners can know who these prospects are and whether or not the Royals should take them or what's interesting about them. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned sort of the tiers of different prospects and you even use this prospect's name. Uh, Kumar Rocker is a guy that probably belongs in that first tier. Most people, I think, feel like he belongs in that top tier with uh, guys like his teammate, um, Lighter, Jack Lighter, the shortstop prospects out of high school, Lawler, some of these guys that people are putting kind of that top tier of top top five picks, if you will. The, the issue is he is probably the only one in that. Well, there's a chance that others in that tier could fall, but he's a name that a lot of people are saying might fall to somebody like Kansas City at seven. And the reason is... There's some questions about his velocity variance uh, up and down kind of with his velocity in college. For those of you who don't know who Kamar Rocker is, he was a huge prospect coming out of high school, probably a top 40 prospect coming out of high school. He chose to go to Vanderbilt. He's a kind of a bigger right-handed pitcher. His dad played in the NFL, defensive line in the NFL. He is a power pitcher. He probably has three-plus pitches already, but there's some command questions. And now with the kind of roller coaster ride of his velocity, if you're going to say there's been one prospect in this draft who's been looked at, he's probably the guy who's been focused on most since he got to Vanderbilt. Um, and so he's under the microscope. And the velocity this year for him did go up and down. He's a mid-90s to upper 90s guy. There were games this year where that velocity for his fastball was in the low 90s. For some people, that's extremely scary because that – could be a precursor to injury is what some people think. And so, yeah, he, but he's the kind of talent that is in that top tier for sure. And so Kumar Rocker, I think he's the kind of guy, if he falls to seven, you have to take him because he has the talent to be the number one pick overall. The next guy that I'll talk about is a high school guy, Khalil Watson. And I'm also glad that you mentioned like organizational strengths and weaknesses because Khalil Watson is a guy, he's a high school prospect out of uh, North Carolina play shortstop now, could continue to play shortstop, but he's a guy you could probably move to center field or either really anywhere in the outfield. He is that athletic. He runs well. Um, and he's got a, he's not a giant guy, but he's got uh, a little bit of a power profile for a high school bat. Now, earlier I talked about, you, you're, you and I talked about kind of ceiling guys and floor guys. He's a ceiling guy. Most high school players that are going to get drafted – um, in the top half of the first round are high ceiling guys. But Khalil Watson does pro- does have some projection to him as possibly an above average power guy. Uh, the one area that is like, eh, I don't know about him, is he's got some swing and miss in his game right now. Um, but he's shown well on uh, showcase circuits and things like that. Uh, so that's a guy I like because of position versatility and athleticism. And he does come from a, a part of the country where they do play some high level baseball as well. The third guy is kind of a wild card here. It may be a little high to take him at seven, but I like his pitching profile. Uh, His name is Sam Bachman, and he's out of Miami of Ohio. He's not a giant guy. He's not like a 6'4 right-hander. He's a thick-built kid, but he's about 6'1, and he's one of those guys who went into college throwing in the high 80s to low 90s and is now going to leave college throwing close to 100. Uh, his fastball will top out at 100 miles an hour. Uh, he has a really uh, good slider as well. Some people grade it as high as his fastball. 
He does have a changeup that's a developmental pitch still, but it's solid. The thing with him has been command. He will walk early in his first two careers at Miami of Ohio. He walked over four batters per nine. And that has come down slightly, but there are still concerns about that command moving forward. Um, some people say he's strictly going to be a bullpen guy moving forward. If you're low on Sam Bachman, that's usually what your, your thought there is. I like him as a prospect. Um, I think that he continues to develop uh, the command. You've got yourself a beginning half of the rotation guy in Sam Bachman. Yeah, a few injury questions about Bachman as well. He had yeah. an injury scare earlier in the season. Um, people wonder if he'll be able to stay healthy as a pitcher moving forward because of size, mechanic issues, and things like that. Um, yeah, yeah three interesting weird, prospects. He's got kind of a weird throwing motion. Um, that, is, yeah. that is for sure. Guys who are as tall as him and throw really hard typically have weird throwing motions yeah. <laughs> uh, or use a ton of effort to get there. Uh, but you know, he's a guy that a lot of people are going to be really curious about and watching on in round one because chance he uh, gets taken really high. If somebody loves him and thinks that he's going to be able to stay healthy, chance he drops really, really far. And so we'll we'll see on that one. I'm interested in uh, a few different prospects. And as I mentioned earlier, and I've mentioned previously on the podcast, I really want the Royals to infuse their team with some outfield talent in this draft. And that's what I thought with the first prospect. I'd be very happy with Khalil Watson as well, but I didn't want to talk about him because Mike's talking about him. So he's my, probably my number one choice. If, if somebody says to me, all the players are available, who do you want the Royals to take? Except for the ones who are definitely going to go at the top, like that catcher from Louisville, Henry, whatever his last name is. I can't think of his last name right now. Um, Davis, maybe the, the catcher from Louisville. Uh, he's good. I would take him too. Cause he just, he's had such a phenomenal season that I, I would want. I would want him, but Watson is probably my number one besides him. Some people love, or maybe Jack Leiter too, just because he's in a different tier than a lot of guys. But the guys I want to talk about who are, I think will be available at seven and who haven't been talked about already. One is a guy that Mike doesn't like so much. His name is Sal Freelich. And Mike probably doesn't like him because Mike probably perceives him as a lower ceiling guy, as a guy who isn't all tooled up, isn't like, you know, going to run a, run the bases like a 70 grade speed or, you know, 70 grade power or anything like that. He's not this huge toolsy guy. He just does a lot of different things well, instead of a couple of things really, really well. And so he's an outfielder from Boston college, left-handed hitter. He's playing center field this year and has done really well. And I think teams are convinced he can stick in center field. And so am I. And so I'm interested in like seeing him play center field a lot in the minors, get really comfortable with it. I think he can be a 60 grade fielder out there. I think he can be a really above average center fielder for the Royals. And then he's got a high baseball IQ, gets on base a lot, good short contact oriented swing, but there is pop in it. He does have some, some home run ability and can really put a charge into baseballs. But what I, I look at him as I say, this guy can be a leadoff hitter in the major leagues, get on base a bunch, make things happen on the base paths, even though he doesn't have elite speed and just do a lot of really good things. I mean, think about Andrew Benintendi. He's like Andrew Benintendi, but a better fielder and, and probably faster too. And so Think about like a more athletic version of Benintendi. You'd take that, wouldn't you? I mean, it, at seven overall, that'd be that'd be great. You'd love that. And so I think that's what I'm seeing out of Salfrey. Like that's what I think he could be. And I'd love to see that taken for the Royals and get some more outfield talent into this organization. The second guy I'm talking about is Jordan Lawler. Lawler's a really toolsy athletic. People are comparing him a lot to Bobby Wood Jr. Shortstop, uh, high school kid, 
has done all the showcases, has been on the circuit, all that sort of stuff, and done nothing but impressed. And so popping his bat, uh, can stick at shortstop, a really good shortstop, athletic, uh, can move around. And he's a guy, even though I think you could move him to the outfield, I don't know that I would because he is so good at shortstop. And so keep him at shortstop. Maybe Bobby Wood Jr. plays third or maybe switch him around or put them somewhere on the infield. And he could be a really, really good bat if they develop him. You want to make sure with a high school bat that you know you go slow with his development and he will move slowly through the tiers probably unless he pulls a Bobby Wood Jr. and just busts out and is, has an incredibly fast learning curve. But I think... He, in terms of potential, you mentioned earlier, like prospect, this guy is ceilings. I mean, the ceiling on him is way, way high. The third guy I have on my list is Brady House. Brady House is another interesting guy. I know I talked, I wanted outfield talent, but there's just not a ton of it in this draft at the top anyway. And Brady House is another guy who probably could never move to the outfield. Actually, I changed that. He could move to the outfield. He couldn't move to center field. Right. And so I would, if I were them, I would consider moving him to left or right field because I think he has the athleticism to do that. But he's a high school shortstop right now, bigger kid. He is not going to stay at shortstop. I don't think anybody thinks he's going to. A lot of people think he'll move to third base. He's got a big arm. He can throw it uh, from third base. Uh, Power profile on him. Uh, MLB pipeline gives him 60 grade pop power. The question is, is he going to hit, make enough contact to get to that power? But he's got a nice swing. I've seen it. I've watched video on that swing. I like it a lot. Obviously, as a high school kid, he's going to have to work on making sure he stays simple with that swing. His approach will probably need work as he moves forward and sees much, much better pitching uh, at the major league or at the professional ranks. But a guy with a ton of potential to hit for a lot of power, be a middle of the lineup guy, and maybe play you a good defensive or an average, at least maybe above average left field or right field in the future if you want to make that move or play him at third base where you could play an average to above average third base as well. And let's let's be honest here. With the exception of, of Bobby Witt Jr., uh, the Royals have been a little skittish on drafting high school players in the recent I think that, past, and I think it's because they realize it's yes. not easy to develop these guys. Yes, it's very difficult. You have next to no information on high school players. They can go on the showcase circuit and they can do all that, but your information level is so low that you're going to get something day one and go, "Man, this is not the player we thought we drafted." Look at all the work that we have to do. And not only that, the the mental slot, like you, yes. you have to not only be talking about physical tools, you have to also be talking about, is this player mentally ready at 18 years old to leave their home, be on their own, develop pr- somewhat on their own during a season anyway, and be able to stick with it when things aren't going well. That's so yeah. tough. I think that for prospects, especially high school guys, it's facing failure at a sport that you have never failed at before in your life and doing it away from the people you love and in this weird context and with all these grown ass men who are professionals and have families, some of them and things like that. And you're being asked to like overcome these obstacles that you've never faced before. And some of them just aren't familiar with how to, there's, there are people who know how to learn. Right. And knowing how to learn as a baseball player is a huge attribute to actually reaching your potential. And when you're 18, 19, 20 years old, man, you're just still really young and still developing your whole psychology and everything about you is still developing. And so it's really tough to then take these, this failure you're experiencing, contextualize it, grow from it, and, and really reach that potential. That is so, so hard. And I mean, think back to when you were 18. Were you doing anything oh to like grow as a person? <laughs> no, you weren't doing... No, no, no. 
you were drinking wine coolers and talking to some lady. Yeah. And so like, you know, that's, that's not, you know, that's not what it's really, really tough to do. And that's why some teams stay away from high school picks a lot. Like the Royals most, for the most part, shy away, I think from high school players, because of there's just too much uncertainty in their makeup and things like that. And so, but I want to move on a little bit. We're running long or I, you know, I hate it when we run long um, because the Royals will have a second round pick and it's, important for teams like them to really find a lot of value in those rounds and the later rounds. And, and the second round has been sort of a, a valuable place for them, I think in the past. And so I want to talk a little bit about pick 43 as well. You have a guy, um, a college pitcher, who's kind of a wild card too, who you like at maybe 43. Yeah. And I like part of the reason that I like it is because the value here could be extremely high. Um, with Jaden Hill is the guy we're talking about from LSU. Uh, Jaden Hill is a top 10 talent. Um, and there were some people who felt like he might go in the top five uh, as a right-handed pitcher out of LSU. Um, the problem is this year, he gets his first chance to really start because of the pandemic last year and all that stuff. He gets his first chance to get uh, be a starting pitcher, Friday night guy for LSU, and he blows out his elbow. So he need he had to have Tommy John surgery this spring, but when he is going well, he is a mid to upper nineties fastball guy with a really good changeup and a solid uh, breaking ball as well. So he's the kind of guy that if you can get him healthy, uh, he was supposed to be a top tier guy, uh, and you might be able to get him at forty three or later even who knows. Um, because some people weren't exactly certain on if he would continue to have the command to stay in a starting rotation. So there were some concerns about the command as well before the injury. Um, but some people are attributing the command issues to the injury. Well, was he already hurt? Uh, things like that. So you don't really know. There is uh, This is kind of a wild card thing with in- guys with injuries, but he's a top 10 talent. Uh, if if you can get him at 43, I think there's value in that. Yeah, I loved Jaden Hill coming out of high school. I wrote a profile on him for Royals Farm Report. He uh, that changeup is the real deal, and a really athletic guy too. He actually, I think he had a scholarship offer to play receiver at Arkansas. Uh, maybe. Quarterback, yeah. Well, he had a couple different, uh, couple different offers. He was a three-star prospect out of uh, high school as a quarterback, so you know he's a good athlete uh, in that sense. So, yeah. So I, I like Jaden Hill a lot. The guy I'd like to talk about uh, is an outfielder because I, like I mentioned, that there's not a ton of top level outfield talent in the like top 10 outfield talent in this draft. But there is some, once you get beyond the top 10, once you get to the back end of the first round and the top of the second round, you start to see some outfield talent and a guy who might be available at 43, who I'm interested in is named Christian Franklin. He's an outfielder for Arkansas, who I think is the number one team in the country, college baseball team in the country. And Franklin's just an athletic guy who knows how to get on base. And that's what I'm really interested in. Has some pop like everybody in that Arkansas lineup seemingly does. Has some pop, good athlete, good defense, plays good defense in center, really a spark plug for that team. So I'd like to see the Royals maybe take a chance on a guy like him. I mean, you're kind of getting a similar profile to Sal Freelich, though Franklin has uh, more problems with swing and miss, less consistent as a hitter, less contact ability uh, than, say, a Sal Freelich does. But Franklin might play a better center field than Freelich. And so, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, I think he provides a lot of value at 43. The Royals are back home for six games this week against the Tigers and Red Sox. Mike, tell us a little bit about a team we've seen a hundred million times, the Detroit Tigers. Um, well, they're starting to play a little bit better because their pitching staff is looking a little bit better. They've got some young guys in uh, Mize and Scooble 
who have started to pick it up a little bit. Um, we're going to start probably with Keller versus Matthew Boyd. Matthew Boyd's uh, probably the best pitcher on their staff. Uh, and we've seen him a couple times already this year. He's a 30-year-old left-handed pitcher out of Oregon State. Uh, he started 12 games, 3.56 ERA, so he's doing pretty well. Uh, he's one of those soft-tossing lefties that the Royals can struggle with at times. But we have, I think we did touch him up earlier this year for five earned runs the last time that we saw him. After that, it looks like it's going to be uh, Mike Miner versus Casey Mize, who was the number one pick a few years ago for the uh, Tigers out of Auburn. He's down to a 3.44 ERA and a really good whip at 1.07. He's got good stuff. He's got a good mix of four pitches that he can throw. Um, he's had quality starts against the Royals this year already. And then the last matchup against the Tigers is uh, Brady Singer against a guy that I like in, uh, is it Tarek or Tarek Skubal? I don't know. You ask me that every time, though. I never know. I never know how to pronounce his name, but I do like Scooble, and I've said that before on the podcast here. Uh, he's a lefty, a kind of a big lefty out of uh, Seattle University. He's got a good fastball. It's not probably great, but it's good. And his secondary pitches can be really good, really good slider, uh, pretty solid changeup, good curveball. But he's got some really decent stuff for a big left-hander. The issue he's had in his career so far, and he started last year as well, uh, is command of the baseball. Sometimes, guys, he, he can give up too many walks. Um, and so that's going to be a tough tough pitching matchup for the Royals uh, this week against the Tigers. But those are they're still the Tigers. Those are you got to win two out of three against those, that team still, even if they are rolling out three of their better guys right now. Yeah, and it's it, that's a series that's going to be important because after that comes the Red Sox, and they're a good team. So uh, they're thirty nine and twenty seven so far. They're second in the AL East right now, three back of the Rays. The weird thing is nobody had people didn't really have high expectations for the Red Sox. I saw a national. Uh, I listened to a national podcast once before the season. Somebody picked the Red Sox to finish fourth in the AL East. That person's probably feeling real stupid right now. Yeah, well, um, it's a good division. You know, it is a good division and people thought like, oh, their starting pitching is not good and, <laughs> and they're not going to be able to, you know, keep it. They're going to win some nine, eight games, but they're going to lose a lot of eight, five games, you know? Um, and so people were worried about that, but their offense has destroyed baseballs. Like people sort of expected they've scored the fourth most runs in the league with 323. They have the third highest slugging percentage at four, three, three. But the thing that's really sort of gotten them their wins is that they're Starting staff has been a lot more effective than people thought it would be. Uh, Nathan Ivaldi, Garrett Richards, and Nick Pavetta have been roughly major league average for them. And when you're going to hit the ball like the Red Sox are going to hit the ball, if your major league average is a starter, you're keeping your team in a game and they're going to win a lot of those games. So yeah, they're they're probably winning a lot of 6-4, 5-4 games off the back of solid enough starting pitching. And then they got a guy in Martin Perez who's actually been really good. I think he's got a 3-8-80 RA which is good for the American League East, where you're going to face a lot of really good offenses. But yeah, it's it's really that pitching staff that's keeping the Red Sox in a lot of games. The Royals are, this is going to be a tough series for them because offensively, the Red Sox can really crush it. And if, you know, Ivaldi and Richards and, P and Pavetta and Perez come out and keep throwing those sort of high quality games, uh, I watched a Red Sox game against the uh, Mets earlier. I think it was Ivaldi versus or maybe it was Pavetta. I think it was Pavetta against, it was one of those two, against Jacob deGrom for the Mets. And what ended up happening is it was a semi-pitcher's duel. deGrom gives up like one or two runs. And, you know, the Red Sox hold 
the Mets, who don't have a great offense, to just a few runs. And they end up grabbing a win. And it's like, this is what the Red Sox are doing right now. Their their pitchers are doing well enough to keep them in games, and their offense is just crushing a lot or getting to a pitcher who's really good, oh, yeah, like DeGrom. Yeah. Two, two runs against him is like 10 against somebody else. I know. That's what I was thinking. Like, <laughs> if, if, we, if, we, if we put it into the DeGrom calculator, uh, two runs against him is 10 against everybody else. And so... That team just really knows how to hit, and it's helping them that their pitching staff is is just being good enough. Well, in this week's episode, the same way we end every week's episode with our Just a Bit Outside segment, where we talk about something that we find interesting outside the world of baseball this week. Mike, what do you find interesting outside the world of baseball? Uh, well, I, I want to let everybody know that like you and I are, are fans of golf. We play a, a lot of golf, I guess, relative to probably average people. Um, we worked at a golf course, a great one called Mazingo Lake Golf Course up in oh, Maryville, Missouri. I love that If you've that never place. been, it is pristine. It's one of the best you'll ever find for the price. Even if you're going up there just to do the RV park or the cabins at the lake there, Mazingo Lake, Go- Mazingo lake itself, Recreation Park, I think they call it now, is phenomenal. So go up there. It's worth the two-hour trip. Um, but one thing I don't think that people around here know enough of, Kansas City is an exceptional place to play golf. Um, I think, you know, this coming from Virginia, we have a lot of great public golf courses here in the greater Kansas city area. Yesterday, you and I got a chance to play a Sykes lady over there in Overland park. Um, I have one next to my house in Harrisonville called hoots hollow. Great place to play. I've been to Royal Meadows there in uh, Raytown, Kansas city border. There is great Hodge park up in Liberty is great. Winter point Adams point out in blue Springs is phenomenal. All of these places too are reasonably priced and they're not country clubs. You don't have to be a member to get on these places. Okay. Um, not that those country club places aren't great or whatever. Um, but man, but you can wear a t-shirt to most of these places. <laughs> that's right. Uh, it's, it's, we just are extremely spoiled here in the greater Kansas city area that we have many wonderful places to play for not very much money. And yeah, that is not something they have everywhere. Cause when you were out in Virginia, we had to drive an hour and a half to play at a place that was on, that was only somewhat reasonably priced. Yeah. It's just not something you find everywhere. So f- be grateful, get out and enjoy the wonderful public golf courses that we have in the greater Kansas city area. Yeah. In the greater Charlottesville area, very few public courses and the ones that are public, if they're affordable, they are not well taken care of. And if they're well taken care of, they are not affordable. And so really it is nice to be back here where, you know, you can get on a golf course for relatively, and if you can play nine holes with a cart for 18 to 20 bucks, and it's just a great thing, you know, like that, that round is going to cost you way more back where I previously was. So take advantage of it, Kansas city, a lot of great golf courses around here. I want to talk a little bit about other sports related things that are happening this week. And that is I'm, I'm focused a little bit. I've had a couple conversations that have intrigued me about the media attention that women's sports receives in the United States. So two things happened this week that really kind of pissed me off. And the first one, actually, I don't know what, in what order they happened, but Simone, I'm going to talk about Simone Biles. So Simone Biles is, there's an argument to me that she's the greatest athlete of all time. I think there's an easy argument to be made that she's the greatest living athlete. And she won the American gymnastics, uh, the national gymnastics uh, competition uh, recently. I want to say within the last five or six days. And there was this meme going around uh, Twitter that was like, mentioned like uh, the number of times uh, ESPN's Instagram account 
posted about the Logan Paul boxing match, the Logan Paul Floyd Mayweather boxing match. They, they posted 17 times about that boxing match and zero times about Simone Biles's win. And I was like, what the hell are you doing ESPN? Like you're playing into this celebrity garbage. And while the greatest athlete maybe of all time is doing amazing things and it just it drives me nuts. Right. And why? Because she's a woman. Right. Like, well, and here's the thing. It's not because of the popularity of the sport of boxing. I can tell you that. No, no, uh, no. It's <laughs> because is I am a, I'm a boxing fan. I, we've been, or I've been a boxing fan since, you know, my early teenage years. Um, and that sport is crumbling. I mean, it's dying and, you know, but people are all, you know, Hey, it's a celebrity fighting a, a retired champion or holding, being held up by a retired champion for eight rounds. Yeah. It's, it's criminal. Yeah. That's another conversation about like the stupidity of our celebrity culture and it's ways it's manipulating sports right now. I don't like it, but I'm talking about like, why is this amazing woman athlete not being publicized, not being, you know, why are performances not on television so people can watch it? And this goes into the college women's college world series for softball. And Mike and I watched the women's college world series, like in tandem with Royals games. So what we would do is we would watch the Royals game at night and watch a replay of the Women's College World Series on another TV along with it. We really enjoyed the Women's College World Series because the game is fast-paced, because it's a shorter game, it's quick. It's just a ton of excitement in that in women's softball. And yet, for some reason, the final game of their three-game World Series was broadcast midday. And it's like, why? Why is this not in prime time? This is an excellent game. People love it. It got 1.3 million watchers. In the middle of the day, imagine how many it would have gotten at six, seven p.m. Right? Like it just—it drives me nuts. And people make this argument that's like, "Oh, male athletes get paid more because they bring in more revenue." That is the dumbest shit I've ever heard. Male athletes get bring in more revenue because they get put on television. Right? Like, so give the women athletes a chance. People love watching these sports. This is—we know this from when the Olympics come around this summer. People are going to be tuned into Simone Biles because that will be put in prime time. When, when the women's soccer plays the women's world cup, they get huge ratings because that's put in prime time, put them in prime time and their ratings will go up and they will earn more revenue. It's a pretty and, simple formula. And it, all you have to do is if you watch the, the, not even the, the women's college world series, not even just that final series. If you watched the whole lead up to it, those games were phenomenal people. They Excellent. were, it's a level of excitement that really you don't get watching major league baseball and you don't totally get watching different. college, college male boys, baseball. You just don't get it. Um, and, and I, this is a person who loves baseball. Uh, I, it was, it was a great, great show to watch the, the women's college world series and I'll watch it again next year. I'll, I'll catch any women's softball, college world softball or college softball. I can, because it's, it's fun, man. They, they are moving around and they are excited and, it's a fast-paced game, yeah. And Simone Biles never loses. What didn't you tell me? Like the last time she lost, yeah, didn't get first place was like ten years ago. 2013, 2013 is the last time Simone Biles finished any lower than first in a competition. She is almost going undefeated for a decade. Imagine if Tiger Woods won every single tournament for a decade. That's all we would be talking about. <laughs> and so this is something that I wish got more attention. You know, uh, I know that some people are like, oh, I'm not into gymnastics. That's fine if you're not into gymnastics, but we should be seeing these sort of history defining moments from great female athletes when they're happening. And I want those moments put in prime time. Get with it, ESPN. Get and, with it, Fox Sports. Yeah. Get with it. 
ABC and and NBC, NBC and other places. CBS. That play. Yeah, and I, yeah, get with it those places. And even even you, women's golf is another one. Women's golf is a great. It's just as fun to watch as men's golf if you've ever watched it. So I know some people don't like to watch golf. I'm a nerd. I kind of like to watch golf. Women's uh, U.S. Open was on this not this weekend, but last weekend, I believe. And of course it's getting preempted by whatever garbage tournament, uh, some throwaway tournament from like the champions, the men's champions thing. So, uh, yeah, you all are with it. You don't got to get with it. Cause you're watching, you're listening to Royals weekly. So you know, what's up Royals weekly rowdies Royals weekly. Well, oh, that's a good one. <laughs> only took us to the end of the episode. Royals weekly dirt bags. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Keep tuning in, despite the fact that my brother's calling you all dirt bags. Uh, <laughs> subscribe, rate, review, tell everyone you know this isn't a secret anymore. Royals weekly is where it's at. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. Go Royals. <laughs>